Hello there. Welcome to Deadly, the hottest talk show about sin since 1210 CE. This is your host, Alex Ennis, and today I'm meeting with Genevieve Amaral to talk about the sin of lust. Genevieve Amaral is an assistant professor in Temple University's Intellectual Heritage Department. Receiving her PhD in Comparative Literary Studies in French from Northwestern University, Genevieve's research interests include the relationship between philosophy, politics, and literature, the French modern novel and avant-garde, and cinema. She's here with us to talk about the sin of lust. So basically the way that we're starting every episode is just kind of asking you, how do you personally define lust just as like a human being? Yeah, well, you know, I think when I approach something like this, it's always useful to try and uh, differentiate it from related terms, of course, mm -hmm. to a kind of a um, disambiguation, right? So obviously when we're talking about lust, uh, we want to distinguish it from desire, right, on the one hand, just straight desire, um, or sexuality more generally. Like what makes lust not se just sexuality or desire? And obviously it's that illicit quality, the transgressive quality, the thing that's sort of naughty or against rules, obviously. And so, you know, the question then becomes, you know, like why do we see certain kinds of sexuality as bad or as illicit or transgressive. Um, and I think that usually we do it for maybe three broad reasons, two reasons with a sub-reason. <laughs> um, so, you know, one reason would be that sex is lust, sex is transgressive when it is like destabilizing socially or politically, I think a lot of the mm -hmm. time. And then sex is illicit or transgressive when for whatever reason we feel like it violates moral or ethical responsibilities that we've got either to others or to ourselves. So right. it's gonna violate some kind of moral or ethical code that we've got. And then for me personally, when the, immediately when I hear a reference to a term like this, I'm a literary scholar and my background is in literature and philosophy, so I always think about representations, right? How has lust been represented in literature? How have we constructed discourses about it in philosophy? What are our cultural artifacts um, in which we depict it? Um, and what values do these cultural artifacts sort of betray about us? Oh, really interesting. Yeah. I like that kind of third component a lot. I mean, like, I'm an English major, mm. so, you know, looking back at novels and just exploring, like, that element is really cool. But actually what you're talking about with, well, lust is not necessarily just sexuality, like, it's something a little bit more. I wanted to talk about that a little bit oh. because when the sins were getting established, it was the meeting of the Fourth Lateran Council in 1210 CE. When that was coming out, um, like, sexual action was very different in terms of like how we define it and in terms of its transgressiveness. So I actually have like a not so short list of anything that could be considered lust. Ugh. It could be just desiring sex too much, having sex with somebody who's not your spouse, having sex at the wrong time, at the wrong place, really just like excessive marital desire and masturbation was also lumped in there. And so was any kind of queer sex. There was like a whole really pretty strict definition of when is the appropriate time to have sex with who. So I'm kind of interested to hear what you think about these precedents compared with our modern standards. Yeah, I mean, I think when we're talking about specifically the medieval Catholic perspective on lust as transgressive sexuality, the really interesting questions that that raises for me has to do with responsibility and personhood or selfhood and subjectivity. We can look at Dante's Inferno, a medieval text, right, written in the first couple of decades uh, of the 14th century. 
The second circle of hell is the circle uh, where we get lust, where he meets uh, lovers that have engaged in, in transgressing this very rule that was, as you point out, so clearly just set up or articulated really explicitly as a deadly sin just a few decades before. So what happens when he gets to that circle? What's in that circle? Well, the circle of lust is the circle, is one of a, a number of circles that are called the circles of incontinence. Those are the circles where you, what the transgression has been that you have been too weak in controlling urges of some mm -hmm. kind. That's the essence of that, of those circles, right, of the, of the transgression in those circles. A weakness in controlling an appetite. You couldn't contain yeah. the appetite. You were incontinent. You couldn't contain the appetite of some kind. Um, and so when he gets there, who does he meet? Well, he meets in particular, you know, the central figures that he meets that I think are really compelling there are these figures of Francesca and Paolo, these two lovers. And Francesca was married to somebody else, and Paolo was his son. She was married to Giovanni. So she was married to this Giovanni who is deformed and who she's married sort of for political reasons. And she ends up instead uh, having an affair with his, with his younger brother, Paolo. And, you know, what she says there when the pilgrim meets her, what she says to him is, and I've got a little quote here, she says, Love, which in the gentlest hearts will soonest bloom, seized my lover with passion for that sweet body from which I was torn unshriven to my doom. Love, which permits no loved one not to love, took me so strongly with delight in him that we are one in hell as we were above. Wow. It's amazing, yeah. right? But the picture here is of love as something that seized her, that took her over, and her lover as well, right? Mm -hmm. And so the problem, of course, is that it characterizes lust not as an active choice that she made, but rather as something that she was subject to. It's a passion related to the word passive, right, mm -hmm. rather than an action, and so the problem, therefore, is, so what's the problem with lust uh, from this perspective? The problem is if you have a code of rules that you want people to follow and that you want to hold them responsible for, you have to believe that we are rational agents that make choices. So the problem with lust, you know, it precisely undermines this. It's this thing that seizes us, that goes contrary to any kind of rational choice. And that's what makes it so dangerous, of course, right? But we can see how that also kind of undermines a little bit the whole idea um, that we can be held responsible necessarily for. Uh, our transgressions, right? Maybe yeah. some transgressions are things that just, we just do. Why do we do the things we do? Why can we have, be held responsible for our urges, for our behaviors, right? right? And this is, that circle of hell is all about that, right? We feel uneasy in this moment because we, we say to ourselves, you know, are they really responsible for this, for this urge, for this right. desire? But in the Middle Ages, the, what they really wanted to affirm here is that precisely you are. It's up to you to make the rational choice to oppose your desires, right? So your desires, your emotions, your urges are not rational. That's part of what makes them bad mm -hmm. because you need to be a rational agent, right? right? In order for us to be able to hold you responsible for your choices. Can't hold animals. Animals can't sin. Children can't really sin because they're not rational agents. So if we're going to hold you responsible, you have to be a rational agent. But the problem with lust, of course, is that it's not rational. So that's the Middle Ages, right? <laughs> right, right. That's, but that's really interesting because actually the text that I'm reading right now is uh, Purgatorio. Ah, perfect. So, I mean, for those who don't know, Dante wrote uh, Inferno and Purgatorio and Paradiso. Um, and basically an account of him going through really all of the afterlife, being guided by the poet Virgil, who wrote right. the Aeneid. Um, and in Inferno, he's in hell and like learning about what happens to people after you die and you're awful. And Purgatorio is purgatory, but it's kind of the step up from hell. It's not quite as neutral as a lot of people think it is. It's, it has a lot to do with repentance and um, suffering for the sins you committed on earth. And there's a lot of different ways you could wind up there. But one is if like somebody prayed for 
for you or like maybe what you did wasn't that bad. But it was really interesting when you're talking about the animal instinct sort of and how that relates to passivity because in the terrace of lust in Purgatorio, whoever the lustful are have to shout out the names of examples of who they've been lustful in the same way as. So anyone who like committed homosexual sex, which was something to be committed at that time, has to call out Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm. And any heterosexual transgressors called out Pacify, which I didn't know this story. It's wild. So Pacify was this woman who was so lustful that she just couldn't be satisfied by anything and eventually decided like, I cannot even be satisfied by a man. So she was like, I want to have sex with a bull. And so she had a like wooden cow built for her and she climbs in the cow and the bull has sex with her thinking that it's a cow. That is kind of the element of her sexuality that is really called out. While you just cannot be satiated, but it is also tied to that animalistic urge. Absolutely, exactly. We want to clearly make that distinction, right? Uh, Or they did want to clearly make that distinction between behaviors that are human and those that aren't. In Dante's system, the reason is because we want to be able to hold people responsible. What can be punished and what can't be punished, right? So why is Francesca in hell instead of in purgatory, right? It seems to be really harsh. It seems like a harsh punishment. She does not, essentially, she doesn't accept her guilt. She isn't penitent, at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. She insists on continuing calling it love, in fact. She always says love. She doesn't say lust. Um, So she hasn't repented at all. And so that really underscores how I think Dante, you know, wanted us to know, to see that there is an uneasy relationship between responsibility, action, and the passions, and emotion, and urges. And that that line isn't so uh, clear, perhaps, as we would like it to be, necessarily. Yeah, that actually line is something that, as I've been thinking about the sins, which for the last three weeks has been often, I've been thinking about that line. And, you know, when do harmless, white lie sort of level sins grow into something that's actually punishable? It was also interesting to me to, like, approach lust as this lesser autonomous sort of action where it's, you know, you kind of surrendering to some kind of external force and it's less, or no, it's the opposite. It's you actively choosing to engage, I guess. Mm. And what was also interesting to me is that usually lust is the last sin that is usually mentioned when you have this all seven sins together and is often preceded by gluttony because gluttony is seen as leading to lust. And so the idea is like, oh, if you like start indulging in things that are not bodily necessarily, but like are like food or drink, often they'll lead to lust because you sacrifice a degree of your autonomy in that action. If you go out and get super drunk, you're going to feel like you have less responsibility for your actions than you actually do. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think um, that's exactly what's at stake here. Again, the picture of ourselves as potentially or necessarily rational agents who can make choices. And I think for a long time, we really wanted to hold on to that idea. And I don't know that we're fully willing now to give up on yeah. that idea. We, I mean, we have a justice system that holds people responsible for their choices, yeah. right? Um, however, we do make distinction in law courts, for example, for crimes of passion, mm-hmm. right? Speci- often surrounding sexuality. But even more than that, I think, so your original question was, what has changed in our view of sexuality? And I think there's been a lot of changes, but I think specifically, there's been a few hundred years of us coming to terms with, or even coming to value, aspects of our minds and ourselves that aren't so clearly related to rationality, 
specifically, mm-hmm. right? Um, and you can think of like the romantic poets, for example, right. right? Creativity might come from a part of us that isn't associated um, with our rational faculties, but rather with our passions, right? Mm-hmm. And love is very important, of course, in romantic poetry as a result. And then you have Freud, right? Uh, in the 20th century that I think really made a, a big difference in this view, right? Maybe right. there are parts of ourselves that Freud was going to insist. Maybe there are parts of ourselves that we don't have access to, things we don't know about ourselves, desires that we aren't conscious of, um, that we've repressed, maybe even things that we find to be really repugnant and we would never want to admit consciously. But we've come, I think, in the 20th century, especially following Freud, to at least come to some terms with the fact that there are maybe regions of ourselves and of our consciousness that aren't purely transparent, that aren't purely obvious to us, that aren't purely in our control. We've come more to terms with the idea that we are animals in part, that Mm -hmm. uh, we have instinct, um, and that this is going to be a crucial and maybe even valuable part of our identities rather than something to be repressed, something to be controlled, something to be punished. Right. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) I I completely agree. I mean, we definitely have gotten to more of a place where that irrational component of existence really is more valid than it has ever been. Mm. And I think that's a really interesting point to make in terms of lust, because so often it's framed as like giving in to like things that aren't rational. And yeah, I love that. Yeah. Uh, so one other thing that has become a little bit more pertinent is how when you think of specifically like transgressive desire is so gendered and it's so different depending on what gender person you're talking about, if they have a gender. And so I'm thinking specifically if you're like thinking within the binary, when you have male sexual transgression, it's often associated with like, oh, he's a ladies man or he's a player. But generally, if a man is like sexually forward, it's praised or at least has been in the past and when women are sexually forward it's a little bit different this is obviously kind of generalizing it's going to be different for everybody but there to me seems to be more of a double standard for women of if somebody is if a woman is really forward sexually people view that as too forward or oh she's a slut or oh all she cares about is sex Um, and how it's hard to hold female sexual sexual advances in the same regard that we hold male sexual advances. And I'm just interested to hear like what you think about that. If you want to connect it to Dante, you absolutely can, but you don't have to. No, I mean, I think I have other literature I can connect <laughs> to, actually. Um, because these questions, actually, it's really interesting because these questions are at the heart. Like I said before, right, our cultural artifacts can be seen as expressions um, or at least revealing of our social attitudes, right, and our values, yeah. of course. And so these questions go right to the structure of our most canonical works throughout at least the Western tradition. I think that at least historically, well, two things. The first is who is perceived as lustier changes are more subject to and weaker Hmm. vis-a-vis or less capable of controlling that passion or that tendency to sin changes over history. Right. Right. If women were perceived as more subject to, and at certain times I think it's true that women were perceived as more vulnerable to lust or less capable of controlling ourselves. And again, that goes back to the perception of women as less rational. And you see, for example, in Plato, um, you see Socrates on his deathbed, his wife Xanthope is sobbing and kind of very upset because he's about to be executed. And what he says is, you know, you have to leave woman. It's time to philosophize. You're too emotional. Right. Of course. So it's tendency to be too emotional, to be too subject to our emotions. It's time to have our philosophical conversations, off you go. And she has to leave. And that's in the beginning of the Phaedo. 
So, uh, yeah, I think the idea that uh, women are less rational and therefore more subject to our emotions goes way back. Um, mm-hmm. Although, as you say, again, there have been certain moments, perhaps in the 20th century, where instead we, we suggest that boys will be boys, men are, more, men are less capable of controlling themselves. That's yeah. It. So that shifts. Interesting. I think. But I think in terms of the value judgment that you are emphasizing, right? Yeah. Why is it worse? Right, exactly. When women give in to lust, right? And yeah. transgress in this way. Why is it worse? Well... Historically, I think it's because we've constructed social and political institutions very much around sexuality in many ways. Uh, Institutions like the family, institutions like all kinds of social hierarchy, who can participate in the political sphere. So much of this is structured around sexuality, of course, right? Especially the family and marriage. And these are core to our whole social system in many ways. And thus, the stability of those systems is very important to protect. And we erect a lot of norms around protecting those social institutions that we erect around our sexual behaviors to control those sexual behaviors and limit them within our institutions. Mm-hmm. Because those institutions are so important, right? Obviously, you want need to protect family for all kinds of reasons, including inheritance laws and responsibility for raising children, et cetera, et cetera. And so for a long time, I think the idea was that women had to be the stewards of these institutions or that women were sort of the cornerstone in an important way or the site where these institutions were built and also the vulnerable site, right? Because we we bear children, right? Right. Um, And so the place where these institutions could be threatened. And so when women engage in illicit sexuality, it threatens those institutions. And that's why it's extra, it's particularly dangerous. It threatens to destabilize those institutions. And so we see it over and over and over as depicted as a much more dangerous thing. Right, because right. it is more socially uh, destabilizing, as I said. So, for example, you see in, in the Odyssey, Odysseus, when he's with the witch, often hypersexualized women or lusty women are witches yeah. or sirens or yep. demons, right? Um, that sexuality is so dangerous. Um, and it's, I think it's because, yeah, it threatens our social institutions, right? So, for example, yeah, in the Odyssey, you get Circe, who uh, her desire for Odysseus keeps him from his project of returning to Ithaca to reestablish his kingdom there, right, and reestablish his household. So she's bad because her desire is, as I say, distracts him. It keeps him from that mission, and that's bad. On the other hand, you get Penelope, yeah. who is so continent, right, <laughs> of her desires. You never even hear about her. Who, what does she even think of these suitors? You have no idea, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> it's the furthest thing from her mind to even have desire or lust for these suitors. And therefore, she's extremely admirable and laudable. She's this bedrock of that family that's so threatened by these suitors and by, by Odysseus's absence. You get it again in the uh, Aeneid, in ancient Rome, for example, right? Dido. Dido's supposed to marry somebody. It's important for the political structure that she marries a particular individual. But along comes Aeneas, and she's attracted to him, and her desire for him destroys her. She has to kill herself, in fact. And why? Because it's particularly threatening to the social or the political structure that she's the queen. She's the queen of Carthage, and the queen of Carthage has to marry this other, you know, king. And her desire for Aeneas uh, is destabilizing to that, is threatening to that. So she must destroy herself after she gives into her lust. Right, of course. Of course. The only rational choice. The only rational, what else are you you gonna do? (laughs) You don't get to date if you're the queen of Carthage, right? Right. But it continues today, I think, to some extent. So in IH, you know, we have a film series this semester. Our theme this semester is Troubling Genders. And we're spelling genders G-E-N-D-R slash S. So 
this mm-hmm. is a shameless plug for our <laughs> no absolutely our activities this, this year our theme that's our theme and we have a film series this semester that focuses a lot of the films are focusing particularly on this sexy witch and how figure and how dangerous that is socially so we're watching in a couple of weeks we're going to be watching Under the Skin I don't know if you saw this movie it's I a, have not it's really interesting it's a Scarlett Johansson film and in it she plays an emissary from some kind of alien civilization and she lures men to have sex with her to their destruction mm. like a siren interesting yeah and by exhibiting and it all starts of course she exhibits her desire for them for these men and it destroys them that the aliens essentially consume these men right as mm. so yeah this idea that women's sexuality is destructive to society is, is threatening to society I think it's because as I said before it's because of how it cuts to the heart of how how many of our political and social institutions are structured around family and sexuality yeah really interesting <laughs> I feel like it's notable to mention that Cersei actually appears in Purgatorio. She's on the Sloth Terrace. Yeah, right? You would think that she is in the Lust Terrace. She's Mm -hmm. absolutely not. She's in Sloth. And she's not there because she's slothful. She's there as a temptation to, like, lure people to just kind of sleep and chill out. And Dante, like, falls prey to Mm -hmm. Cersei's wishes. But that is another element of giving in to these intuitive impulses and not using his rational brain to combat that. So it's the same, I guess, like, sin structure as lust. But I think that emphasizing women and women's sexuality as the cornerstones of these institutions is really interesting. It's not something I have totally thought out before, but it also makes me think about non-binary people, trans people, um, just queer people in general, and how institutions often neglect that community completely. And kind of thinking about lust in terms of queerness and in terms of homosexual desire. It's not really discussed as much, and I think that technically when the Seven Sins were established, it was a separate sin from lust. Sodomy was separate, but I figured that the best place to have that conversation would be in the episode about lust. Yeah, it's a very good point, right? It's very interesting. It suggests an even further challenge to the structures that we have historically relied on to establish our power relations and our hierarchies. What's interesting is that, okay, I'm not a biblical scholar, so I don't want to wade in too far into interpret, and there are so many interpretations mm-hmm. of what was meant by the sin of sodomy in the Bible. Um, I was just actually recently looking at a book by someone interesting called Susan Ackerman called When Heroes Love, which is very much about this question about what appears to be same-sex desire, or what is same-sex desire in the ancient Near East specifically. So in the Epic of Gilgamesh, for example, and in, in the Bible. And so that's an interesting reference if anybody wants to go. I really recommend that book. It's pretty accessible as well. It's a scholarly work. Great. But it's pretty accessible and it's relatively recent. And there she talks about how really the problem, she talks a little bit about this, the problem of, of sodomy or the problem specifically of same-sex penetration, specifically between men in the Bible, had to do with who was perceived as more powerful where power lay, and also who was socially, politically powerful and and had the right to be active and make political decisions in that society. And so she talks a great deal about, and this is apparently true in ancient Mesopotamia as much as as in in ancient Israel, this question of specifically who penetrates who, and that's it has to do with the, the problem of power and who has the power, and that power was constructed around the capacity to penetrate. And so that is, and so this destabilizes that. 
So I'm, I don't want to get too much more into it because it's not my my field of expertise too much, but that's an interesting reference if people are, are interested in that. Yeah, that's um, also interesting in terms of, I don't know, this is not like a super academic term, but I've heard of like the terms power bottom and power top mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, when you're talking about specifically male gay sex. That's interesting because I think a lot of people ascribe power to whoever's topping, but they're like, now our definitions are not so strict just in general and so i think it's interesting that now even though that is where this definition of sin was born and you know is obviously influenced by is now we are kind of inverting that and making it applicable to everybody and not just to what the rules have been set as it's really true yeah and i think that's exactly right that's the idea in the ancient world at least was that power is associated with with the power to penetrate physically penetrate somebody else's body in this way but you're right about the modern world. I mean, my research really is <laughs> to shift to <laughs> right. something I actually feel like I have some authority to speak on um, is in the 20th century, and in particular in the first part of the 20th century. And I'm currently working on Marcel Proust, who was a novelist, one of the most important novelists of the 20th century, wrote In Search of Lost Time, which is this big, long, multi-volume novel <laughs> <laughs> that can be summarized in a million ways. But one way it can be summarized as is as a story of one young man's effort to figure out how to become an artist, portrait of an artist, as it were, mm-hmm. as a young man, right? His desire to become an artist and how do you become an artist? So where do you find inspiration and how how do you become a good artist? And throughout his life, he encounters many different kinds of people. Specifically, one person that he encounters is this figure called the Baron, Baron de Charlus. The Baron Charlus, I guess we would say in English. And Charlus is gay. Is an older gay man, and and this was so this would have been in the fin de siècle, the turn of the 20th century, is where when it's set, um, written between 1913 and 1922. Anyway, he meets the Baron de, de Charlus, and he figures out he's a young he's a young man, he's like a teenager when he figures out that the Baron de Charlus is gay, and what he realizes eventually he comes to take Charlus as his, I, I think I argue in my research, <laughs> he takes him as his model for an artist. And the thing is that Charlus is not an artist. Charlus did not write. And this, he says this is a great tragedy. The tragedy is that Charlus never wrote. Why? Because he has the right attitude toward the world that an artist should have. And what is that attitude? Exposing oneself to the danger of pursuing one's desires. Pursuing one's desires opens oneself up to the world in all kinds of ways that's very vulnerable making and very threatening. What Proust is trying to say with Charlus is that this is extra true. This is particularly true for non-heteronormative desire in the first part of the 20th century because it was illegal, because it was so illicit that you are opening yourself up not just to shame and ridicule and ostracization, but in fact to the law, to being imprisoned and prosecuted. But Charlus runs this risk, and that makes him impressionable and open to the world and to experience in the way that an artist must be. And so being an artist for for Proust is taking risk, is taking the risk of being true to one's desire, opening oneself to one's desire, following one's desire, but also to letting the world potentially, to the risk that that entails, that you might suffer as a result. And so Charlus becomes this model or this key for what the artist has to be, which is this individual who pursues their desire, whatever the possible outcome. And yeah, and and that the gay individual is especially a model for this in the early part of the 20th century because just how vulnerable and just how dangerous this was at that time. 
So it's interesting. And you see that not just in Proust, but in other figures as well in the early part of the 20th century, where artistic creativity is very closely linked, particularly with non-heteronormative desire because of this, because it opens one's imagination or, or not imagination, but relations to the world in ways that aren't conventional and that therefore are important to art. So that's a way in which it totally changes in the 20th century. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I feel like that's still applicable then now to come out just in general, but to come out publicly as a gay person, as any member of the LGBT plus community is such an openness to vulnerability. And I mean, today it's also dangerous to be a member of that community, especially in a public way. Yeah. That's really, really interesting. It's very moving. It's one of the most moving aspects, I think, of, of Proust. I mean, it, it leads to, it also opens you to all the moral conundra that relating to people sexually entails, right? Like Charlouse, his desire accidentally leads him sometimes to violate people to engage with people who aren't capable necessarily or in a position to relate to him as adults or in their full mental capacities or whatever. I mean, it means that sexuality always is going to involve this moral question of relating intimately to another individual and that you are taking on their vulnerability too in a certain way and relating to them in a vulnerable way and in their vulnerability as well. And Charlize isn't always like the perfect moral individual, but this is part of what's important for an artist too, right? That they navigate or try to navigate all these moral questions around human interactions. And that this comes to like a head with sexuality. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. That's yeah. so cool. It's a great book. Read it. <laughs> the only thing I know about Proust is that on Gilmore Girls, both of the Gilmore Girls complain about reading Proust. Oh, really? What's the problem? What do they oh, say about it? Oh, it's just so long. Oh, it's very long. It's long. It's hard to get through everything. It's true. It's a life project, for sure. Yeah. I know that it's, yeah. A labor of love, I'm sure. It's a labor of love. It's true. It's true. I know it's on a lot of people's nightstands for many decades. <laughs> but right. it's actually much more funny and much more moving than people give it credit for. Yeah, I can relate to that because I love medieval texts. Mm. And most people are like, ugh, that's awful. So wrapping up our conversation on lust, I think that the answers to these kind of questions will obviously vary per individual, but do you think that lust is deadly? Is it a deadly sin? Okay, referring again to my, my area of expertise, which is 20th century French thought and literature. So there was a, there was a tendency in, or a school in 20th century French thought that was particularly interested in the ways in which sexuality and lust drove us to points at which our certainties are challenged. In particular, our certainties about our identities and ourselves. So I've worked on this philosopher and writer named uh, Georges Bataille, it's extremely transgressive, and you know many people will, will suggest that there's real moral problems with what he writes. But one thing he does describe is of this phenomenon called, in French it's called erotisme, translated roughly eroticism. Eroticism or erotisme for, for Bataille is an experience of uh, essentially an encounter with otherness, an encounter with the outside of yourself an encounter with the limits of your capacity to understand the world and even to understand yourself as an, as an individual. So it's getting really abstract, I know. But, the, <laughs> but the point for him is that real true eroticism for him is, is an experience of realizing that maybe the way you see the world is not the only one. Maybe, in fact, your certainties about even 
what seems like objective facts might not be so sure, and that other people see you in ways that you don't see yourself, and thus you have no control necessarily. You don't have as much control over your identity as you think you do. So it threatens our the integrity of ourselves, essentially, right? Having an erotic encounter is realizing that somebody else sees the world completely differently and sees you completely differently from how you see yourself, and in fact sees you as an object to some extent, right? So it threatens the integrity of your subjectivity, that you are the sort of protagonist of the novel, right? Right. Maybe you're not. Maybe you, in fact, are somebody else's sidekick, right? Or somebody yeah. else's love object, right? right? And when you do that, the certainty of who you are and what the world is starts to kind of crumble a little bit. And that's almost like death. And he uses images of death to describe this because... Yeah, our conception of what it is to be alive is to be a subject who relates to the world and the rest of the world is the object and you're the subject and you go around making decisions and, and having experiences, right? But sexuality sort of puts a crack in that because suddenly you're like, uh, there are six billion other <laughs> worlds right. uh, and subjects, right? And they see me completely differently. And that's, for him, that's like a brush with death a brush with the dissolution of our subjectivity, of our selfhood. And, and we've been talking about before about this idea of giving up control, giving up our certainty that we're rational beings who make decisions and know what we're doing all the time and that, you know, we know who we are. That is something akin to death because we imagine death as a state in which we're absent or, you know, we're not, we're not present, right? And sexuality leads us to that point maybe where we're not as present or as in control. Or lust, specifically. Right. Lust as a form of sexuality that's a passion that takes us over, challenges the integrity of our, of our selfhood. Anyway, that is the sort of the 20th century French perspective on, on erotisme and on lust, is, is as something kind of deathly. Very cool. Yeah. I, like, I like the idea of it as deathly and not necessarily deadly. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, that is so cool. I love yeah, it. Yeah. Actually, I just had a thought about oh, referring. Oh, great. So, I mean, I guess what we've been saying all along is that, you know, to, to learn about lust is to read literature. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that it's everywhere. Is that it undergirds our values around sexuality. I mean, to talk about lust is to talk about our, is to put a value statement on sexuality. That is what right. calling it lust is to do. When you approach literature and philosophy, look for ways in which lust might be structured. Right. what you're reading in ways that might be un uh, unexpected. Thank you for visiting It with was us. my pleasure. Um, just some other thanks uh, to other folks. Thank you to Temple University's Honors Program for letting us use their space and equipment, to Duncan Brady for connecting me with Genevieve in the first place, to Ben Webster for our theme song, and to Dr. Carissa Harris for her academic support of this project. And to our listeners, keep sinning. <laughs>